The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. Hello, my name is John Schaefer and I'm here today with Hamza Azim, Principal on the Evergreen Portfolio Management Team at Hamilton Lane. Hamza, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, John. Okay, so I want to look at your Global Private Assets Fund. Could you tell me a bit more about it and who it's for? Yeah, sure. So the fund was launched in May of 2019, and the idea behind it was really as a reaction to what our investor base was asking us for. So the fund was launched or set up to come overcome some of the nuances that come associated with a traditional private equity fund. Mm. At a higher level, if you think about it, it's accessibility, the administrative burden, and liquidity. And those are some of the things we've tried to address in this fund, where it comes in as an open-ended semi-liquid structure, as we call it, so investors can come in into a fully deployed portfolio on day one. Uh, it's monthly subscriptions and redemptions. Redemptions capped at about 5% of the NAV of the fund on a quarterly basis. The minimum amount that is required to uh, invest in these funds is significantly lower than what's okay. typically required for a closed-end fund. So really set up mainly for private wealth channels. But interestingly enough, we've had quite a bit of interest from institutional investor base as well. Excellent. All right, let's let's break some of that down. So semi-liquid structure. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about it. So you've you've got um, a, a redemption period, and the, the the cap of that redemption fer- period is five percent of the NOV, isn't it? So could you could you go into a bit more detail on that? Yeah, sure. So the any single investor can redeem hundred percent at any given point in time. The redemptions are capped at 5% of the NAV of the fund on a quarterly basis. So on an overall fund basis, there is a cap on a quarterly basis. At an individual investor level, there is an initial lockup period for a 12-month lockup period, uh, but beyond that, free to redeem. So beyond the 12-month, is there a notice period as well? There is a notice period, yep. but it is on a monthly basis. It's just a few days ahead of the month end okay. where they can put in a notice for redemption and then redeem thereafter. Okay, excellent. And you, you mentioned the sort of the minimum entry there. Could you specify what that is? Yeah, sure. So there's two uh, share classes that we have, an institution, an I and an R share class. So there's a minimum of 2 million for the I share class yep. and 125k for the R share class. Okay, excellent. All right, let's go under the hood a little bit. Could you break down the key investment areas and what where you're currently seeing the best opportunities? Sure. So if uh, at a high level, if we look at what we invest in in this fund, there's three main buckets. So there's a direct equity bucket where we're going directly into the equity of the assets we're investing in. There is a direct credit bucket. So instead of going into the equity, we go into the debt or mm. credit of the asset. And then there's a secondary bucket as well. So essentially, think of secondary market as existing private equity investors looking to get some liquidity back. They come to the secondary market. There's buyers like ourselves who are able to buy those, typically at a discount. Those are the three buckets that the fund invests in. The reason we've put the three buckets together as they are is keeping in mind both the return that we are targeting for the fund as well as the liquidity. Uh, To your second question around where we are seeing more attractive opportunities right now, 
I think it's in the secondary space and credit in the current market environment. Okay, and what kind of return are you targeting? Sure, so over the longer term, we are targeting a 10 to 12% return. Yep, okay. Uh, and let's drill down a little bit more. What's the typical size of the companies you're investing in, both in terms of the equity portion and in terms of the, the credit? Yeah, sure. So you'll really see a range of uh, company sizes that we have in the fund. Where we really find the sweet spot is, I would say, is the top end of the mid-market range. Okay, and specifically in terms of like market cap? Well, so, I there's no market cap. but uh, Yeah, so in terms of company sizes, you can look at it. Anywhere between, I would say, um, 500 million to 2 billion of EV. Excellent. Let's drill down a little bit into the private equities secondary market, which is a big, big focus for you. Um, maybe you could explain what pricing is like now. Um, are there sort of discounts that you're seeing? Are you, are you able to sort of swoop in? Yeah, sure. So I think if you look back over the last 12 to 18 months, secondaries has been an interesting area for the market. Uh, naturally, a number, a couple of reasons there. Firstly, the limited partners were overexposed given what happened in the, in the, in the public markets and we're looking to get some liquidity back. The general partners as well were bringing some GP-led secondaries to the market as well because they wanted to hold on to some of their more prized assets for a longer period of time, but at the same time get some liquidity back to the LPs. So we still think secondaries is a buyer's market and there are attractive opportunities. In terms of discount compared to last year, may, maybe they're a little bit softer this year, mm. given the some of some of the recovery so we've seen in recovery. the public yep. space. Exactly. Okay, so yeah. what kind of in sort of percentage terms are you seeing? Yeah, I think it de depends on the portfolio. Yeah. If you're looking at a buyout portfolio, I would say anywhere between 10 to 15 and maybe slightly higher is what you're seeing. If you're looking at venture growth portfolio, there the discounts can be much higher. Okay. and and sort of looking at the, the venture growth area, I mean, obviously clearly a tough environment there. Have you reduced or increased your allocation? Yeah, it's a good, great question. So again, over the last 12 to 18 months, we made the deliberate choice to go underweight on venture and growth. So we have about 10-ish percent in venture and growth in the portfolio mm -hmm. right now. And the way we try to access venture and growth in the portfolio is also, also through the secondary market. The reason for that is you get a more diversified exposure rather than a single name exposure through our direct equity bucket. Let's look at performance over the past year. Obviously, it's been tougher market conditions. Could you explain you know, what's happened to performance? Yeah, sure. So if you look at the fund's performance, the annualized since inception performance we've had is just shy of 14%. If you look at last year when publics were down double digit, the fund was still up, depending on which share class you're looking at, anywhere between 8 to 10%. This year, so far as well, we've been up over 6%. It's interesting that so the fund was able to be resilient when public markets were hit so hard. H how did you do that? Yeah, again, great question. So I think if you look at where the performance was coming from, and if we bifurcate it, what we find is that a bulk of the return was driven by the EBITDA expansion of the underlying assets in the portfolio. Okay. Even though multiples were down, which is in line with public markets, the fact that the underlying companies were performing well and EBITDA was expanding had was counteracting some of that impact of public markets. Okay. And and how do you do the valuations on those assets? Sure. So we use a third-party independent valuation agent to value every single position in the fund on a monthly basis. Mm. And the reason for that is, for one, we wanted that the valuation uh, process to be completely independent and outside of the firm. And secondly, because it is a monthly fund where investors can come in and redeem 
on the basis of the monthly nav, we had to have a process in place where we're not sitting on stale valuations, but valuing positions every single month. So regulators have been looking at private equity or private markets valuations in general. The SEC has been looking at it and now the FCA is looking at it. Do you think they're fair to be scrutinizing valuations? And there's a lot of criticism in the industry about it private markets valuations. Yeah, I think it's fair to scrutinize it. And I think the more transparency we have there, the better it is, because it it will give more comfort to the investor base as well. I will say, though, that when we look at valuations in private markets, we do believe those are a fair representation of the value of the assets in the portfolios, especially in the buyout space. Yes, mm-hmm. venture and growth are harder to value, but we do believe that valuations are a true reflection. And I think the real test of that is where typically exits happen in private markets compared to the value at which they're held. And what we're looking at data, what we see is you see a 10 to 20% uplift in the value of the asset upon exit compared to where it was held. But it's obviously a harder environment for exits. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and you can see where there's cynicism. You're saying that your, your funds sort of been positive last year where public markets have been really challenged. Uh, I I think it's fair that people start to scrutinize those valuations. Yeah, and I think I will again go back to historical data and look at the relative performance of private markets versus public markets. And what we generally tend to see is private markets do tend to outperform publics across different market environments. And that outperformance is more pronounced when publics are typically down. Let's move on to private credit, which is also quite a significant portion of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Where are you seeing the opportunities there and, and what are you avoiding? I mean, I've, I've spoken to, to some bond managers that have, have sort of been, been, been saying that some of the junk is kind of hidden in, in private markets and private credit. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I think private credit continues to be an interesting area in the market in general and naturally for for us as well for us in the portfolio it can be anywhere between say 10 to 20 percent of the fund we are at about 15 percent and it really is the liquidity provider in this particular fund where we are seeing more attractive opportunities is in the uh, are in the senior credit uh, space what we are looking for is recession resilient businesses typically in non-discretionary uh, sectors that have the ability to service their debt across different market environments. What we're trying to avoid is sort of uh, capex heavy, uh, high fixed cost businesses or highly levered businesses. Mm. Uh, Typically, I would say we are looking for conservative uh, loan to values where the leverage levels are relatively low and assets have the ability and have a history of having performed across different market cycles. What's the advantage of private credit and senior debt over private uh, over public debt? Yeah, so if you look at the how the market is evolving, private credit is is expanding significantly, right? There's a few reasons for it. If you look at what has happened more recently where banks have essentially sidelined, the leveraged loan market has been done significantly, that gap is being filled by private credit mm-hmm. players because private credit players offer a more a one-to-one process where they can sit across the table with the private equity player, with the company to, neg- to agree on the exact terms that, uh, you know, that, that would uh, work from a company's perspective. At the same time, when it comes to things like refinancings or any structural changes, they can be more understanding of that. Plus, from a confidentiality perspective as yeah. well, there is benefits. And, and what areas of the private credit market are, are, 
you're really avoiding? What, what's what's a, danger, a sort of warning sign for you? Yeah, I think highly levered companies, yeah. high fixed costs, high capex, um, sort of, I would say, a troubled balance sheet uh, is still okay in the sense that if there is a plan to change things around and it's an underlying company is solid and performing, is fine. But if there, if it's essentially financing to kick the can down the road is what we're really looking for because those are sort of areas we want to avoid. Um, I want to move back to something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation about buyout funds. Now you've got a pretty chunky weighting to buyout funds, sort of on average between 50 and 70% of, of the fund in buyout funds. What's the real opportunity there and, and why now? Yeah, so I think what we believe is that the long-term value creation really comes from that part of the portfolio. Uh, relatively speaking, it's a more steady and stable part of the portfolio. So that I think will always be the majority of what we invest in from a strategy perspective. Um, why now? I think uh, it's, it's really looking for where we see more attractive opportunities at this point in time. I think one of the benefits that we have in this fund is that we have a dynamic asset allocation policy where we can shift even if we are doing buyout are we doing it in direct equity or are we doing it more in secondaries? So if you look at how the fund has evolved over the last 12 to 18 months, we've tilted more towards secondary opportunities because uh, that's where we were getting some attractive uh, opportunities. Let's move on a little bit. Who, who do you think private assets are suitable for? Clearly, there's a, a lot of noise around private markets at the, mo at the moment. Um, but I think it's often perceived sort of for the higher end of high net worth individuals yeah. and, and maybe the, the typical wealth management client has been locked out of this area. Yeah. So I think the perception is there because the asset class was just not accessible to a wider market precisely because of some of the nuances that we went through earlier on, which is the accessibility, the liquidity, the administrative burden. So products like the, the open-ended semi-liquid structures are really trying to address it and make it more uh, available for a wider part of the market. So I think here, for, for, from a returns perspective, we've seen that it is an asset class that outperforms and it should be available to a wider uh, investor base. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it is targeted towards specifically the top end of the high net worth. It's basically structures or regulations or technology that can make it more accessible to a wider investor base. So we've had the, the LTAF structure in the UK. How yeah. does this fund compare in, from a structural perspective? And, 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 you know, would Hamilton Lane consider an LTAF structure? Yeah, sure. So if you look at what steps have been taken to make the asset class more accessible, I'd probably categorize them into, into three. One is product innovation, which is products mm. like these evergreens. Second is technology. So technology to make the process more seamless, whether it's tokenization or anything else. And third is regulation. And that is where I would probably put the LTAP, LTAP structures or any other initiatives that are taken in other geographies. The way we've sort of developed this fund, as I mentioned earlier on, is as a reaction to what our investor base is asking us for. And if LTAP or any other structures is something that uh, our investor base requires or we think would make the products more accessible, yeah. it's certainly something we'd look at. And, and specifically on, on, on this structure, how easy is it to sort of integrate for a sort of UK wealth management firm? And, and yeah. 
And I, I appreciate maybe your, your typical clients are sort of the, the pan-European private banks. But when we kind of go a bit further down the sort of large UK wealth managers, how easy is it for them to get on board with this fund? Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's an education process. It's a journey. I mean, UK is, is, is a key market for us in this fund. We have private wealth channels. We have endowments, charities, single family offices, multifamily offices, some institutions. There's a whole spectrum of uh, investor base that we have, not just in the UK, mm. but globally. But we do continue to see a lot of interest in the UK. We were with the, with the private wealth channel uh, earlier this week, where it was essentially a teaching on on the asset class in general and the product specifically. And that was really as a reaction to what their investor base or their client base is asking them for. And have you had any uptake from UK wealth management firms? We yet? do. Right. Okay. So you've got you've got some who have bought into to the fund already. That's right. Okay. Excellent. Maybe you could run through some of the typical questions and concerns that they ask you. Yeah. So I think uh, the, the the biggest thing that comes up is liquidity. How do you manage liquidity in a product in an asset class that is otherwise illiquid? Uh, I can tell. I mean, and I think it's there are different ways of tackling it. The way we've addressed it is by creating liquidity from within the fund. Okay. And again, this is leveraging off our platform and the data that we have on the markets. And that's precisely why we've put it in three buckets. So if you think of, for example, starting from a return perspective, the equity bucket is the top of the spectrum, the credit bucket is the bottom of the spectrum. If you look at it from a liquidity perspective, it's the other way around. A bulk of the liquidity will be generated from credit positions, which are sort of shorter duration, mm -hmm. steady yielding part of the portfolio. And the bottom end of the spectrum will be the equity, which are the longest duration assets and secondary somewhere in the middle. So the way we've modeled and structured the portfolio is such that there's enough liquidity generating okay. generated from within the fund. So you're not generating liquidity by having a portion of the fund in public markets or in cash or in treasuries or something that's a far more liquid. No, so we are not investing in any uh, publics in this fund. There might be some public market exposure, very small, which is if you have an asset in the portfolio that, for example, has gone through an IPO and it's now a public equity in the fund, but we won't directly go into any public positions. Um, and yes, to your point, we're generating liquidity from within the fund. At any given point in time, there may be some structural cash in the fund, mm -hmm. which is cash you've penciled for deals waiting to be funded. So we can utilize that for some uh, liquidity as well. And on top of that, we have other sources of liquidity, such as a credit facility that can be utilized as well. And what proportion of the fund on average is more liquid? Yeah, so I mean, uh, if you think of credit as the more liquid part of the of the fund, that's about fifteen-ish percent. Okay, and and when you say credit's more liquid, it must be very short dated to to be, as you say, more liquid. Yeah, so if if you look at the contractual duration of private credit deals, that's anywhere between say five to seven years. What you typically tend to see is refinancings happening okay. at that two to three year point. But also bear in mind we have secondaries in this fund as well which you're entering in at that late stage inflection point where you have some near-term liquidity coming back. However, if you do have a lot of redemption requests simultaneously, what would you do then? Yeah, so I think it's it comes down to so portfolio construction, one thing. Second thing I would mention is portfolio management. Mm. So we've built a portfolio management team precisely to work on 
the liquidity management, the cash flow management of this fund. So every week, the team would look at what is our cash position, what are we seeing in terms of any new subscriptions, any redemptions, any liquidity coming from existing assets in the portfolio, any uh, any uh, commitments we may have in terms of new deals that we need to fund, mm-hmm. this active liquidity management of it, plus having other sources of liquidity available. As I mentioned, we, we, we have a credit facility that we just that sits there as an additional pool of capital available to us to bridge any liquidity gaps should the need arise. How many redemption requests have you had over the past year? And do do you ever hit your withdrawal ceiling? So we've never hit the ceiling. Uh, We've never had a quarter where we've had uh, net redemptions in the fund. But we do obviously, as the fund is over four years old now, so we do see redemptions because that is a feature where that we do offer investors and there are investors that have been in the fund for a long period of time now and trying to getting some of their uh, return back. But any redemption requests that we've had in the fund, we've been able to meet them through liquidity generated within the fund. Um, b- because you're, you're trying to manage liquidity a little bit more in this fund, mm-hmm. does that mean returns are going to be a bit lower? So if you compare it to a private equity fund, naturally private credit has a lower return profile than private equity, right? So mm. yes, there is... Uh, the, the, the idea behind this fund is to have steady state returns over a longer period of time. So it's not like a venture growth portfolio where you're looking for very high returns. It's steady state consistent returns across a longer period of time. Okay. And, and on that basis, what, what are the fees you're charging on this fund? What's yeah, sure. So uh, we have, again, the, the, the two share classes, so the management fee for the uh, I share class is 150 and for the R share class is 195 and then there is a carried interest at 12.5% uh, with a threshold of 8% for equity deals and 6% for the credit deals. Okay, cool. So, so I mean, it's reasonably punchy fee, fee structure, maybe, maybe, maybe kind of mi- middle of the road in terms of the, the industry, but, but obviously a lot, a lot more than a typical public equity or, or multi-asset fund? Yeah, look, I think it's a private asset as an asset class compared to publics is a more expensive asset class, right? But the returns we look at or the returns that I mentioned earlier on are all net of fees. Uh, and I think okay. f- from our investor perspective, that is what really matters to them is what is the end, at the end of the day, the net return that they're getting on their investment. And that still is superior to what they get elsewhere. So, so all that being said, you know, why should wealth firms really be considering this? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I'll, I'll, if, if you look at last 22 vintages, 22 of those 22 vintages, private markets have outperformed or buyout has outperformed uh, public market equivalents. And I think that is testament to the fact that as an asset class, it outperforms. Historically, though, it's only been in, available to the institutional investor base, again, for the reasons that we already went through. So now is the time where we're trying to make the asset class more accessible and addressing some of those issues that come associated with it. So there is a superior return profile because we believe better operational performance, better governance structures. Uh, So I think having an allocation to alternatives does make sense from a private wealth channel or from a high net worth uh, point of view. If you look at to sort of put some numbers around it, if you look at the global assets under management, about 50% of that is held by high net worth individuals. 
But if you look at the alternatives and the AUM of the alternatives world, only 16% of that is held by the high net worth okay. individuals. So there's a huge room of uh, for growth, uh, we believe. Excellent. Well, Hamza, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for your time. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.